I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you, the listener of this podcast, have read at least one of the books written by my guest today. Shall we see? Here's a title, Blink. Here's another one, Outliers. Another, What the Dog Saw, David and Goliath, or his most famous work, The Tipping Point. Yes, that's right, my guest today is none other than Malcolm Gladwell, author of five best-selling books, a staff writer for The New Yorker since 1996, and as of late, the voice behind the new podcast, Revisionist History. So, so you've written books, magazine features, blog posts, um, and now you've moved on to podcasting. What's, what made you decide to go the auditory route instead of kind of doing Revisionist History as another book or something like that? Uh, well, my friend Jacob Weisberg, who runs podcasting company asked me if I wanted to do one and I said why not <laughs> I think I was procrastinating about writing my next book and I was looking for some excuse um, to do something else and then uh, I just did it as a lark I didn't really have any uh, I had never done something like this before and it struck me as really fun and 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 I, th- I, ima- I thought it was going to be really simple and you know it would take me <laughs> six weeks and I would go back to my yeah. normal, and of course, you know, six months later, I discovered this is actually a full-time job. Um, but I'm glad you, I discovered. Did you that. listen to Did you listen to podcasts before? Or were there Were there some that you enjoyed before you um, started this, or was it, it like kind of a one-off? Let me see what this is all about. Well, I I um, I'm a runner, and I don't listen to things when I run. But I hurt my knee, and so I became. Uh, I had I spent a year just doing the elliptical. Um, and so while I was rehabbing my knee, I began to listen to podcasts. So I listened to, this is before I started to do my, this, you know, I did Serial. I did, I started listening to, I, I've always listened to Bill Simmons' podcast. Um, so I began, I got into it then, but I never, you know, I'm not really, because I don't really like having um, buds in my ears. And so I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not a natural audience for this medium. Um, I don't drive, I don't commute. You know, I don't have a, I don't drive to work every morning. So, um, the two big opportunities to have been a big consumer were not there for me. So, um, so in your podcast, Revisionist History, which I, I love the, the title, um, you bounce around from you know all different types of stories. In this in this series, you do uh, a golf course in L.A., the civil rights movement, McDonald's French fries. How do you find your stories, either for po- the podcast or for books or whatever? Where do you, do you do you just kind of pluck something out of the air? How does it come to you? Well, that's the... Uh, uh, I don't know. I wish I had a better system. I'm always desperate for the next one. With this season, I had... I had six ideas pretty quickly, and then I turned them into seven by splitting one story into two, and then I turned them into eight by splitting another story into two, <laughs> and then, you know, and then we had nine, and I needed one more, and I, for the life of me, had no clue what the last one was going to be, and then I had this idea that I would do something on country music, and then I went to Nashville, and I was up against a deadline, so we everything else was in the can, and we had number ten wasn't even a you know wasn't even an idea and I had like two weeks so I went to Nashville with this kind of lame idea I thought and I interviewed this guy and it was an amazing interview and then I went home and I looked at my tape recorder and I thought as it turned out thank god wrongly that I hadn't recorded the interview or I had recorded it on a volume so low and I just thought I am screwed I 
I got two weeks left. I had one shot. I came all the way to Nashville. I got this guy. Against all odds, he turned out to be great. And then I screwed up the recording. It was the worst, like, four hours of my life while I waited for my <laughs> producer to tell me whether the sound was usable. But it, um, so, you know, it was like I came pretty close to not having a tenth story. But, um, you know, you sort of have so to, like, at a certain point, just have faith that if you start something, something will emerge. So, like, let's let's walk. Can you walk us through the? I know the episode's not out yet, but can you walk us through the McDonald's French fries one? How how does that come about? How do you decide? Okay, I'm going to do something on McDonald's French fries. Well, I had years ago. I had done this. I can't even remember why. Years ago, about a little New Yorker article about French fries, which wasn't very good. But um, in that article, which nobody I think read, I had in passing talked about McDonald's changing the recipe for how to make fries. And then I'd also years ago done a story where I'd hung out with these people in San Francisco who run a food R&D lab. And I really liked them. And, they were, and I sort of stayed in touch with them. They were really fun. So then I just had the idea that since it's radio, you're always looking for scenes. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to get the guys at the R&D lab to make me fries the old-fashioned way, because they can make any food in the world. You tell them, you know, if you want 17th century goulash, they'll make you 17th century goulash, right? So, <laughs> so I said, I thought, what if they made me McDonald's fries the old way, the way that McDonald's used to make them, and then make them the new way, because McDonald's changed the recipe in 1990. Um, <clears throat> and I'll do a blind taste test, and it'll be really fun to do. So I just called them up, and I was like, will we do this? And they were like, totally. So I just flew out to San Francisco, and, and the, the heart of the story is just, I mean, other stuff happens, but it's just me in this lab outside of San Francisco with these hilarious food tasters, food, food engineers, taste testing fries. Um, and I just thought that's fun. I mean, it's the whole, the, that episode, so many of my episodes are in this, seri- in this season are so serious and particularly the heavy ones have not hit yet. There's some yeah. really heavy ones coming. So I just thought I need to have something that's lighthearted. And so this one's just a lark. I mean, it's we're literally could, eating fries for 10 you, minutes. Could you episode. tell the difference? Oh, oh my God. I mean, I'm not going to ruin it, but the short answer is absolutely. I mean, it's not even, not even an issue. Okay, good. I can't wait to listen to that one. So, so you were talking about, you know, um, heavy issues, uh, you know, um, you covered a lot of uh, racial issues and uh, specifically mm-hmm. around the civil rights in in, in this latest series. Um, was that was that brought on by the Black Lives Matter movement, or was that just a part of what happened in history that you kind of really wanted to look at? What what brought that about? Well, I've always been partly because of my own racial heritage, and partly because just idiosyncratic interest. I've always been really interested in the civil rights movement, and I. You know, I had a big chunk of my last book was about uh, Birmingham. And I have, you know, my library of civil rights books is, you know, I probably have a hundred books just on the civil rights movement. So I've read really deeply in it. It's just, I just find it fascinating. Um, And I, uh, and so I just had, I just felt there were so many fantastic stories to tell um, about that era. And also, from a kind of podcasting standpoint, there's incredible archival audio. 
Mm. Um, and so anytime you get a matchup between our Carvel audio and your own personal interest, it's a win. I mean, it's just like it was a natural to do. Um, and I have, a, and I have a kind of a point of view on this. You know, these are issues that make me angry. Um, and uh, you know, I, so because the podcast medium is so conducive to your point of view, really comes through because you're using your voice. You know, the, you're using the engine of your point of view. So it just seemed like I had things I wanted to say. I had archival footage, and then what's what's coming up in the two episodes that haven't aired yet are I had these two long conversations with Vernon Jordan, who's one of the greatest storytellers of all time. And so once I had that, I was like, oh my goodness, you know, I've got this guy telling these unbelievable stories. And so I was, that was enough. I was off to the races. And what, can you, can you give us a preview of what one of those stories was or that? Well, he's, so Vernon was, uh, Vernon was, got out of law school in 1958 or nine and went to work for one of the few black lawyers in the state of Georgia, a man named Donald Hollowell. And that was a time, you know, pre, you know, this is before the big breakthroughs in civil rights, um, when there were almost no black attorneys in the South. And he basically traveled around, they traveled around the South taking on impossible cases. And so he just tells me stories of those years. And then I put them in sort of context um, and they're heartbreaking stories. I mean, they are heart. I'm sure, yeah, breaking stories. And you know, the idea that there is someone still alive who remembers that era, I can tell you about it. And it because it, when you listen to them, you think this is the 19th century, and then you remember, oh no, 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 I recorded this interview three months ago in Rockefeller Center with a guy who goes to work every day. Like this, that, that's the, it's that level of immediacy that makes I think it's so powerful. Have you, after kind of working on these civil rights stories, have you thought more or differently about the current racial issues in America, especially, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, but also, you know, what's been happening with the police, you know, Mm -hmm. who often shoot unarmed black kids or, um, you know, situations like that and don't end up getting in trouble for it. Have, Have those early stories made you think about these latest ones differently? Yes, absolutely. In fact... The first thing I did once this season wrapped was, I'm now working on this book, and uh, I started reading about... What is about, the book? Um, pardon me? What is the book, the new book? Oh, uh, I don't even know. I don't have a title yet. Or, it's just a book. <laughs> I mean, I'm just starting out. Um, it's, a, um, it's hard to explain. I haven't really figured out what it's about, but I know what I'm interested in. And I'm interested in... One of the first things I started to do was to read very deeply about these police shootings and um, the behavior of police in these circumstances. And so it's like, you know, there's no line that separates the stuff I think about for my articles and my books and the stuff I think about for my podcast. They inform each other. And I I absolutely, listening to Vernon Jordan for, and doing these stories on the Brown case and um, Birmingham, it, it kind of radicalized me, I think. It made me much more interested in in um, digging around in these issues. Hmm. So one of the things, you know, when I listen to these stories um, and, and, and your writings in the past, too, is, is um, 
it seems like history often gets things wrong. <clears throat> is mm-hmm. that is that the case, or is it just that these are kind of the the sad anomalies where history got things wrong, or or is it that most history is wrong? Well, it's not that history is wrong. It's that uh, human memory is flawed. Um, so the stories that we tell each other all the time are always wrong in some way. They're never perfect. And when you try and put together many people's memories to construct a historical narrative, you're going to incorporate an extraordinary amount of bias and subjectivity and just plain error. Um, you know, the, the thing when I was a newspaper reporter, and you'll know this, that it took me years to learn was, was that the reason you check everything someone tells you is that most of what people tell you isn't true. Not because they're lying to you, but just because they remember it wrong. And that's why you have to check it. If you don't check stuff, you know, I was always fascinated at The New Yorker. You'd, you'd, you'd work on some piece for two months. You'd be incredibly careful about your facts. You'd give it to the fact checker. And invariably, the fact checker yeah. would find, at minimum, 25 errors. 25, yeah. 50 yeah. errors. Um, you know, that's just human... You know, that is just, that's our, the process by which human beings assemble and make sense of facts is so error prone and so biased that there's always going to be an opportunity to tell a story a different way. Hmm. So you've described yourself, you're, are you religious? You're a Christian, right? Um, I, I am, I come from a very religious background. My own relationship to religiosity is um, complicated, but I am, um, Extraordinary sympathetic to religiosity, yes. Do you think that there's a lot of revisionist history in things like the Bible? Uh, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to tell. I know we can't really go back and ask anyone, but I, yeah. you know, when listening listening to your show, and you know, just, I mean, the, the one that kind of got me thinking this was the episode about the the statue in Birmingham mm. with the kid and the dog, and and I started thinking, wow that's just one statue, you know, uh, uh, isn't everything going to have this? And then I started thinking about, you know, kind of the, uh, religious aspect of the South and so on. And, and, uh, Mm. um, and wondering if maybe there's any way to tell or if it's just kind of, it is what it is. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I look, a huge amount of theology is exactly that is, arguing over the, the, the correct way to make sense of, of um, uh, the historical record when it comes to... Um, I, mean, I remember uh, going to Sunday school, not Sunday school, uh, Bible, Bible school, Bible camp, actually, as a kid. And the, um, there was a very brilliant um, pastor who ran it, got him Vernon Lease. And Vernon made us all stand at the blackboard with a piece of chalk and he read to us from a piece of scripture and we all had to write down what we what he said what we heard and at the end after about 10 minutes we all sat down and he we examined everyone's writings on the blackboard and we noticed how different how many like errors had crept in how many some people had dropped words some people had mixed up tenses you know some and his whole point was this is what the bible is it's people the Bible was created by people like you taking down stories, and they didn't get it 
perfectly. And so you have to kind of keep that in mind when you make sense of of biblical stories. I've never forgotten that. That was my, my f- earliest, I mean, I was probably eight. That was my earliest introduction to the kind of inherent subjectivity of history. That was your first episode of uh, Revisionist History. That was my first episode of Revisionist History. didn't have your tape recorder history. working yet. <laughs> yes. I wrote the I wrote one of my books. Um, Hatching Twitter was about the founding of, of of the startup that Donald Trump loves to use. Um, and one of the things that was so fascinating was when I first approached it um, uh, was there was this narrative out there that Jack Dorsey started it when he was seven and uh, in his bedroom, and it was this idea. And what I found in the reporting was that that was complete and utter to be frank, bullshit. Um, <clears throat> there were dozens of people that worked at the company that founded it. They were all throwing spaghetti against the wall. Twitter ended up being the one piece of penne that actually stuck. And the thing that I, I found this over and over again covering Silicon Valley, um, that so much of the history of a company is just completely mm. made up. Um, do you think, why do you think that happens? Is it, is it because it's good the person who ends up running the company wants the power and the credit is it is it a you know as you just said a game of telephone in the media or something like that or is it monetary why does this happen with companies well i think it's more fundamental i don't think it's nefarious i think it's a kind of you know there's some really excellent work on uh on our memory of uh sort of the narratives we tell about memory there's a huge amount of work on this but one of the things that um is very striking to me in that work is that over time what happens with our memories is that we foreground ourselves and we prune away details that seem, that complicate. So if you, there's a really brilliant book that I read years ago about someone was looking at civil rights narratives, comparing the, the stories people told at the time with the stories they told years later. And what happens is You've, they move their the focal point over the years. So in, they tell the story originally, and they're like, and I was in Nashville when I heard Dr. King had been shot, and I got in my car, and I drove that night to Memphis, and I went into his, you know. 20 years later, they're like, you know, 10 years later, they were like, and I was, you know, across town, and I heard he was shot, and I, like, got in my car, and I drove... And then, like, finally, I was in Memphis right there when he was shot. And, you know, you're, you're not deliberately lying, but what you're, you're, what you're, the, the thing that your memory is focused on is that this was a hugely important moment, and you were there for some crucial part of the emotional drama, and it affected you as if you had been there when he was shot, right? Your memory cares about the emotional truth. And each of those three stories is emotionally the same. They are all saying the same thing, which was, this is one of the most important things that ever happened to me. And I got, and I participated in it. But the facts, the fact of how you participated in it is something that just gets, gets warped over time. You know, eventually you just simplify it. And so that all that's left is the emotional truth. Well, this is what's happening in people's narratives about companies. They're just, over time, they're kind of pruning away everyone, all the complicating factors, and they're putting themselves in the foreground, um, in the center of the narrative. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think, like I said, I don't think that's deliberate. That's just what we do as human beings, you know. Uh, um, It's a kind of central fact. Our memory is not interested in recreating a videotape perfect videotaped version of events. 
It's interesting yeah. in, in, in memorializing emotional truth. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. These days, there are so many podcasts to choose from, but finding a good financial podcast that tackles the hard-hitting money and investing questions without the financial boring jargon that comes with such a topic is not so easy. That's why I listen to Jill Schlesinger's podcast, Better Off. Jill interviews informative and entertaining guests each week to uncover surprising financial insights and give you actionable information to make the most of your money. One of my favorites is her recent episode with my colleague at Vanity Fair, Michael Lewis, who is the best-selling author of Moneyball, The Blind Side, The Big Short, and a bunch of other books that all got turned into fantastic movies. I'm a huge fan of Michael's work, and his interview with Jill is really wonderful. Together, they focus on his latest book, The Undoing Project, which explores how a bizarre friendship led to the creation of the field of behavioral economics, which in turn revolutionized big data, advanced the field of evidence-based medicine, and led to new approaches in government regulation. Be sure to check out Michael Lewis on Better Off with Jill Schlesinger wherever you subscribe to your favorite podcasts. It's really one that you shouldn't miss. So... Um, Winston Churchill once said, um, and we all love this and know this quote, history will be kind to me for I intend to write it. And I used to believe that in politics and war that was actually the case. Um, and I think it was the case. But is it is it still the case with, you know, with 24-hour news cycles, always on social media, the president of the United States tweeting and tweeting and tweeting? Um, is, you know, is there any way, for example, um, that the Trump administration will be able to revise the history of of, of all this Russian stuff, or or is it? Do we live in a different era where technology has changed who writes history? No, I don't know. If I, uh, remember, you know, I'm not convinced our this moment is that much different from previous moments. You know, in in Churchill's time, everything was written down. Um, so there's this there's a voluminous um, kind of written record, but even that doesn't prevent people from telling their side of the story. You know, they. So today we have a voluminous digital record. It's not going to prove any more of an impediment to people being subjective about history. That, in fact, it might even be a bigger impediment just because the volume. So much stuff. Yeah. It's just so much stuff. Who's going to have time to go through it? Um, you know, I was one of the episode. The episode that drops tonight is about Churchill, um, hmm. and. It's based on the work of this really brilliant, um, uh, in part of this really brilliant Indian historian, and she she went to the to the um, British archives and read a whole series of archives about crucial facts about it, um, English naval policy in the Second World War, which no, it's clear no one had ever read them before. So it's like it's 2017. And there was a, ca- a huge cache of absolutely crucial documents in the British archive, which were which bear directly on one of the most crucial events of the war, and nobody read it until a physicist from India asked in like 2009 if she could read them. Like, so it just gives you a sense. Like, there's so much that, and this is this is nine. This is from. Uh, from 70, 80 years ago when, you know, the fraction of stuff on the record was, when the amount of stuff on the record was a fraction of what it is now. So, you know, the historians, if anything, history is going to be even more subjective in the future because it'll just be impossible to wrap your hands around um, the kind of um, the record of what happened. Well, that's depressing. 
um, uh, just to shift gears for a minute, um, uh, I'm just going to bounce around with a few questions. Um, you, speaking of mean people on Twitter, um, a few years ago you wrote a piece in the New Yorker in response to a Gorker article about uh, smarm, um, which oh, yeah. to me felt like a word for justification about mean people on the internet. Um, uh, I personally feel like the meanness of the internet and Twitter and things like that is one of the worst things that is a, that has happened as a result of of it. Do you still feel? What, what are your thoughts on that? Because I know it's something that you care about quite a bit. Oh, so I'm just kind of curious. yeah. Uh, I don't know. I I um I just started. I just tune out the meanness now, and so I don't. I'm not dwelling on it anymore. And I find that the interactions uh, that I have on the internet aren't that mean. So uh, I'm not sure. Like I had some inter- some guy emailed me the other day. He was very upset about the last episode that aired of Revisions History, and I really upset. Called all kinds of names. About? He thought it was reckless of me to re-examine that story and didn't understand what I was getting at and thought I was doing a disservice to the civil rights uh, movement. But I wrote him back a very thoughtful email, which I said, here are my reasons. Um, I'm glad you listened. Uh, Then he wrote me back an email that was softer in tone saying, you know, actually, I like a lot of your stuff, but I did have a problem with that. Can you explain this more? I'm still upset. So then I wrote him a longer email explaining that and then he wrote me back and he was like uh thank you uh you've satisfied my curiosity i'm gonna i accept your explanation i'm gonna keep listening so like it made me realize that that uh, a lot of what looks like meanness on um the internet is simply it's inadvertent he wasn't there wasn't a malicious bone in his body he was mm. expressing his frustration but the internet just allows you makes it easy for you to express your frustration in an intemperate way. What he was really doing was asking me a question. Mm-hmm. And I answered the question, and he actually, then our conversation became very civil. Um, and what he was also doing was he wanted to be heard. Um, he didn't mean to be mean, but he wanted me to know that one of my listeners had an issue with, um, you know, one of my, as it turns out, one of my loyal listeners. He turns out he'd read all my books and like, you know, so he felt he had, and he did, he had standing to say, look, dude, I've been reading you for years. I listened to all your podcasts. I, this one rubbed me the wrong way. Um, so once I sort of understood his position, I realized he wasn't, he, you know, he wasn't actually mean-spirited at all. He was the opposite. Hmm. He was, and I, I just, my sense is an awful lot of what sounds like viciousness online is actually that. It is simply... Um, people wanting attention and wanting to ask questions but not knowing how to do it in a civil way. Unless, of course, your last name is Trump. <laughs> um, yeah. Moving on. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about what your day is like, what, what, you, what your media consumption is? You, you know, what do, you, do, do you wake up, a, you, you said you're a runner, do you listen to podcasts now when you run? Do you read the print paper or do you read print books do you read books I mean what, what, what is a day in the life oh. of, of Malcolm well I Gladwell? read a lot uh, I only read print books I don't really like reading online that much um, 
I read the paper New York Times at lunch. Uh, I don't really read it before then. I, I read two websites in the morning, Marginal Revolution. Which are? Marginal Revolution, Tyler Cohen, mm. and uh, Let's Run, which is my, mm. running, my, running, my special running website. And then, I, um, and then as my uh, reward for being a diligent, hardworking person, in the afternoons I read uh, The Ringer. Bill Simmons's sports web uh, podcast uh, website, um, and then so wait, so you don't you don't procrastinate during the day and like go on social media and I mean a little and, bit. You know, I mean, I you know I will check to see what people are saying about my podcast episode of one has just dropped, and I will uh, I do at some point during the day go through my Twitter feed because I have a uh, it's how. I, you know, I, it's very useful to figure out, you know, points me in all kinds of interesting directions. Um, but uh, no, I'm not someone who spends, I will look at cars online because I'm a car nut. But I don't really, I'm not someone who spends a lot of time procrastinating online. Um, there's a, I always run out of ideas about what to look up online. So then I just go back to work. <laughs> um. And so, uh, um, and do you watch uh, like TV and movies and things like that, or are you? Much no, more I don't really watch. Read? I watch sports on television. Uh, I watch uh, track meets on, t- on my computer. Um, I have, I at this point, <laughs> highly edited. I read lots and lots of thrillers. I read books oh. that are related to the things I'm interested in at the moment. Uh, I read lots of. I have huge stacks of journal articles that I read, um, that I've, that I've, I send my assistant, you know, 20 sites and she, she delivers me a stack of printouts and I read through them. Um, so yeah, that's usually, I don't really have time to do. Uh, and then I then I usually run in the late afternoons. Um, how, how, so, how far do you run when you run? Well, when I'm doing a long run, I might run 10 miles when I'm doing a workout, you know, on tonight I'll go to my I belong to a track club and we'll do a track workout um, or I'll run hills or some I have various running buddies here and there who I run with and um, who share the same masochistic tendencies as I have um, <laughs> but uh, you know I don't I, I don't have the world's most exciting life <laughs> this is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton I don't know about you, but shopping for new clothes in physical stores can be a bit boring. And yet, shopping for clothes online can be equally as tedious. That is, until I discovered Bombfell, which is absolutely the easiest, most enjoyable way to buy clothes on the internet, or off the internet for that matter. The way it works is you go to the website, fill out a simple questionnaire, and then you're given a personal stylist who sends you clothes to try on. It's free to sign up, and you only get charged for the clothes that you keep. Once you sign up, you wait for your clothes to arrive and then try them on at your convenience in your home or wherever you'd like. You get free shipping, free returns, and they never charge above retail price. It's really that simple. And Bombfell is the only styling service that does not charge any fees to work with them. You don't need to worry about random stuff showing up at your door either. Your Bombfell stylist emails you their selection before sending anything off. You're in total control. It's fully personalized, so every piece of clothing has been handpicked just for you by your own stylist. 
For listeners of Inside the Hive, Bombfell is offering a $25 off your first purchase. That's like a free t-shirt just to try this service. All you need to do is go to bombfell.com slash the hive. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash H-I-V-E to get your free $25 towards your first purchase. What's, what's one of your favorite stories that you've ever worked on? If you had to pick one whether it's from a book or a podcast or a blog post or even a tweet, like what's the fa- your favorite thing that you've ever done? Or if you had to tell someone that they should read or listen to or something, what would it yeah. be? Yeah. Oh dear. Uh, let's see. There's one episode, the one I just described about country music, the one that nearly fell apart, the one that I, the idea that I didn't have until the very last moment. I'm actually very proud of that episode because it's sort of, I the writing of my own that I like the most is the stuff that verges on self-parody. So I think that when I'm being mischievous and when I'm making fun of my own slightly pretentious tendencies, that's when I feel I'm at my best. So I like it when um, the, arg- the argument I'm making is more than a little bit absurd. And so this uh, episode... So what's the argument you're making in this episode? It's, it's a little bit absurd. I mean, I, I, what, is the, oh, what is the argument? It's, yeah, a, it's an argument about why... It's, a, it's, an, argu, it's, a, it's a, uh, an episode about the sad song divide. Why does country music have lots of sad songs and rock and roll doesn't really have any? Um, any good ones, anyway. It has bad ones, but not good ones. Which is a plausible enough question to ask, I suppose. But my investigation of this is, I mean, let's be clear, absurd. I mean, I'm just having fun. I mean, I'm just, I'm really making fun of myself. I'm, I'm doing a kind of parody of a Malcolm Gladwell piece about country music. And I'm sorry, I just found the whole thing so hilarious and so absurd. And I, you know, if you're not rolling your eyes halfway through, I have failed. I mean, it's supposed to be. The golf episode was also... I'm very fond of that episode because it's just, I mean, by the time I'm talking to the philosopher, I mean, it's, it's absurd, right? It's just, this again is self-parody. It's like, of course, I would call up a philosopher to ask about the ship of Theseus paradox as it relates to Los Angeles country clubs. Like at that point, I'm just thinking about what is the best way to kind of make fun of my own persona, you know? Um, anyway, I like, that's, I've always preferred that mode. And if you look at the writing I did, as a kid, it was all tongue-in-cheek. It was all, you know, absurd intellectual investigations of, um, of uh, seemingly serious topics. So that's how I kind of got my start in writing. And I like to return to that whenever I can get away with it. So can you, um, without, you know, I'm sure everyone will, everyone's going to listen to that episode of the, the country song, but can you, can you tell us why there are no sad rock and roll songs and so many sad country songs? Well, I have a, se- I have a semi-serious theory about specificity. That you cry when melancholy collides with specificity, with detail. So I can get you... And I, I have this whole... One of, the, one of the things I do is I compare um, Amy Lou Harris's From Boulder to Birmingham with the Rolling Stones, uh, uh, Wild Horses. 
And my whole, it's absurd, but my whole thing is that Wild Horses is a terrible song. And it fails because it's just the lyrics are juvenile. I and mean, you've no idea what Mick Jagger's saying. And From Boulder to Birmingham, I'm going to append is a masterpiece. You know, it's all about the specificity of the image, uh, images in that song. And then, and then I go into this long thing about George Jones. And um, it, uh, I mean, it's, it ends up semi-serious, but like it's, it's uh, I'm basically pretending that all of rock and roll is a kind of um, meaningless exercise in mindless extroversion. And that country music is an investigation of, of hard-won emotional truths. And that if you and further on top of that, I I suggest that and if you don't see that, if you aren't on country music side, then you're vacuous and shallow. <laughs> Which well, is I, you know, it's just like I mean, who's, what's not to like? <laughs> so so where where does Johnny Cash fall? I mean, it's, uh, he's a, well, I'm talking about Johnny Cash. I could have. I mean, there's there's a million different directions. Perhaps that'll be part two next season. But um, you know, he's to my point. I could have done a whole thing about, you know, the two versions of Hurt. Um, one with great emotional solemnity and one which is just self-indulgent and petty. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's lots to be said. So, um, last few questions and then we'll let you get back to um, uh, your running websites and so on. Um, do, do you, uh, so are you planning, a, you're planning a third season for Rosinous History? If I, I'll keep doing it as long as I can come up with ten ideas i mean like it's not easy by the way it's like brutally hard I so um yeah i hope so um i, I really <clears throat> enjoy it so um, and when you when you approach your i'm sure there's a lot of people listening that um have read your books and listen to the podcast and your stories in new york and so on what's your process for 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 i mean i would say you know even podcasts or writing what is your process do you outline everything first do you do you do the reporting and let that lead you in the direction? Do you just kind of start writing and it all comes together? What, what is the process for you in, in, your, in your creation experience? Uh, well, it differs. Uh, from this book I'm working on now, I started... I have little things that I'm interested in and I go and I like do long interviews and see whether it kind of... I'm see what really see what I remain interested in the subject. The real question is, can this topic sustain the amount of investigation I need to do to do something meaningful with it? So you need to know whether it has legs. So a lot of the early reporting is just seeing: is there something there, or is this a blog post? You know, um, mm. uh, not, I don't mean to demean blog posts, but I mean, is it 500 words or is it 50,000 words? That's what I'm trying to figure out. And that's not obvious a lot of the time. Um, and then I accumulate, after I've accumulated a certain number of these stories, I try and do an outline. So for this book I'm writing, I've written the introduction. Now, I don't know whether that'll be the introduction to the actual book, but it's the introduction that allows me to keep going with the book because it sort of signposts what interests me. Um, and then I just kind of start in the, and I kind of start in the middle. I don't, I write as I go along, always. Um, you start in the middle and you kind of piece it all together by the end? Yeah, like I'll do, there's a specific chapter of my book I'm going to try and work on over the next month, a month and a half. And it requires, I've, the thing I did this morning was I figured out there's one guy 
at the Natural History Museum who I really need to talk to him about this trip he took to New Guinea. Um, I don't know where he is. I hope he's not in New Guinea because it's going to be hard. I want to go and see him. He hasn't returned my email yet. But, um, you know, and I realized if he... I read these series of these articles and I realized, oh, these journal papers he did. And I was like, oh, I recognize in all of this very dry psychology writing that there's a great story here that if he, if I'm sure if I just sat down with him, uh, it would be amazing. And it's a, it's a wonderful way into this point I want argument I want to make in this chapter. So there is a, a case where I kind of been rooting around last week. I went to Boston, interviewed someone who was really good, but her story is not the right one. And I think this guy's is. So I'm just looking for the kind of signature story. And when I find it, then everything will, will drop into place. Um, but uh, so it's like, that's the, a lot of it is searching for, or I also, I went to Washington two weeks ago and interviewed a guy. I thought he was going to be that, but he's not. But then I found another guy and I think like he's the guy. You know, I'm going to go back to Washington and interview somebody. You know, it's like, it's constantly searching for somebody who embodies what I want to write about. It sounds like it's almost like a game of Tetris where you're waiting for that perfect piece. Yes, um, I'm waiting for the... But I, you know, you know, it's easier if you have a kind of general sense of where you're headed. Um, uh, and doing the podcast is really interesting because it's made me think more. I've never in my life had to think about mix before. And with the podcast, about you're... About what, sorry? About mix. So you have mm. 10 stories and they can't all be yeah. the same. So, you know, you, you ask people to listen every week for 10 weeks. There has to be variety. And so... Now I'm thinking like a, like a booker for a talk show. You know, like you can't, you don't interview Jennifer Aniston and then interview someone who's just like Jennifer Aniston, right? You, then, you, then you bring in the, the, the anthropologist or the something else. You know, you kind of, and I have to think, and I've, I'm now much more conscious of that. And I've, it's changed the way I think about assembling stories for this book. I'm much thinking much more about mix. They all inform each other. Yeah. So very last question, which is something I ask all of my guests, um, is if you could go back in time 20 years, or it could be 10 years if you want, um, and give your younger self some advice, what would it be? Oh, wow. Uh, uh, you know, get married. Um, <laughs> probably, probably it. <laughs> that's it? I think that's and, it, yeah. Okay. Any any work related advice? Any for, oh, work related advice? Uh, no, it doesn't have to be. I just you know I'm just <laughs> curious. Uh, what would I have done differently? Uh, well, you know, I had an opportunity when I worked at the Washington Post to go, to be an overseas correspondent, to be the German correspondent, and I turned it down. And I think I should have said yes. Uh, I could have used a good dose of another country. I think that would have made me a much more interesting writer and person. Um, so Who knows? I would have... maybe, maybe, maybe you'll end up in New Guinea. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, that's why I'm holding out for a side trip to New Guinea. But uh, no, I think I would, have, I would have been more adventurous in, my, in where I chose to live. Hmm. And you've, you've been in New York for how long now? 20 some odd years. Got it. Yeah. 
Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, uh, and people can get the podcast on iTunes and at revisionisthistory.com. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, cool. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks to my guest today, Malcolm Gladwell. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Tweet it out to your friends, share it on Facebook, anything you want to do. Thanks also to the folks at Digital Media for their production work and my editors at Vanity Fair. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, Better Off and Baumfeld. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I'll see you next week.